People have always longed for truly expert financial advice. Really useful money advice has always been a major desire, right? <clears throat> How far would you travel to get, to get ideal money advice? 100 miles? Would you go 500 miles to get expert financial help? That's nothing. Open your Bible. 1 Kings chapter 10. I want to introduce you to a lady who traveled 1,500 miles by foot because she wanted to engage with an incredible financial advisor. 1 Kings uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. The queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's fame connected with the name of Yahweh and came to test him with difficult questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very large entourage with camels bearing spices, gold in great abundance, and precious stones. She came to Solomon and spoke to him about everything that was on her mind. So Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too difficult for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba observed all of Solomon's wisdom, the palace he'd built, the food at his table, his servants' residence, his attendant's service, and their attire, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he offered to the Lord's temple, it took her breath away. Sheba is roughly the area of modern Yemen. Uh, Solomon had opened seaborne trade down the Red Sea and, in fact, all the way to the Persian Gulf. And that had spread his fame to this area. So this queen travels 1,500 miles to question Solomon, finding about his wealth and wisdom for herself. This little tiny country of Israel has become, by this point, the wealthiest country in the world. In the world. And she wants to find out what's behind all this. Sheba brings along examples of her country's trade and produce, wondering what she can learn. By the way, Jesus referenced her journey. Do you remember that? Matthew chapter 12. Uh, the queen of the south that's her, will rise up at the judgment with this generation, the people Jesus was addressing, and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, Jesus says, something greater than Solomon is here. She brings, uh, she brings everything with her to go a, a massive distance in ancient terms so that she can learn from Solomon, but the greatest wisdom possible is Jesus himself, and people won't listen. Now, did you notice how she quizzed Solomon at first? Do you see that? She quizzed him. Do you know why? I imagine it's because she feared he might be like the typically poor financial advisors that have always plagued humanity. In case you've never run into a bad financial analyst, let me show you what a bad financial advisor is like. Number one, they want all your money. They want all your money. Number two, they can't answer your questions. Every time you ask a question, they answer with some kind of mumbo-jumbo or insider-speak uh, idioms until after a while you begin to realize they don't really know the answers. They just know fancy words like boilerplate, right? They can't even answer your questions. And number three, they don't practice what they preach. They tell you to buy low and sell high, but their portfolio is all upside down. They tell you to, to work hard and use money very, very judiciously, but they're lazy and wasteful. Now, Full disclosure here, I am blessed with an excellent financial advisor. None of those bad traits are true of Craig. Further, I know some very brilliant and helpful advisors, some of them sitting in this room glaring at me right now. Um, that is what Sheba fears she'll meet. She's afraid she's going to meet this, which is why she quizzes him so hard. But in Solomon, she gets amazing financial advice. Look, our first problem about them was they want all your money. Solomon doesn't want or need her money. He just dispenses wisdom for free. Okay, she brings a few tons of gold, but he is open to help her regardless. He gives what she desires. Number two, Solomon does understand. He seems to understand everything. She almost certainly asked him riddles. By the way, that was the ancient practice. Uh, Tolkien didn't make that up in a cave with Gollum. It really was the ancient practice. When you wanted to find out how wise someone was, the ancient practice was you asked them riddles, and you saw whether they could answer the riddle game. It seems like a game to us. It was very, very serious to them. Uh, she, she, she did not get boilerplate answers. 
She got real answers. And thirdly, Solomon practiced what, what he preached. His palace was so efficient, his trade relationship so strong, his wisdom so incredibly practical, it, it took her breath away. The point is there is no one, there is no one who can tell us more about, about handling prosperity and material wealth than Solomon. Now folks, we could spend all year on this because you know a quarter of the Bible is about money. But Solomon summarizes so well that we can focus just on one book, his book of Ecclesiastes. Open your Bible to Ecclesiastes where we're going to spend the rest of our study. Solomon does for each of us here what he did for the Queen of Sheba. Start with Ecclesiastes chapter 5, uh, verse 19. Ecclesiastes 5, 19. God has also given riches and wealth to every man, and he has allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. As we summarize in your notes, um, you got a worship guide when you came in. Look on the left-hand side as you open it up. It says, money issues are universal, every person. Now, I know what you're thinking. In that hillbilly accent that you employ in the privacy of your own mind, you're saying, well, the good Lord must not consider me every man, because I sure done got shortchanged in the money department, right? I understand. It feels, it really does feel that way. But the reality is every single person, every person has to manage some kind of wealth. The, the amounts differ, but the principles are universal. Large or small, we are stewards of God's provisions. This applies to all. This is not merely information for someone else. And every person's management faces problems. As Solomon exposes through the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, the blessing of money leads to two basic kinds of complications. In general, money problems take two forms, handling lack and handling abundance. Lack of money is pretty easy for us to envision, right? That's not really hard... Let's do this. If, for any reason whatsoever, if you've ever had a month where you didn't know if you were gonna have enough money to pay the bills, raise your hand. Ever in your life, okay, nearly every hand. We can all understand that. Abundance is a little tougher to visualize, but it is probably, it is probably an even heavier burden. I know, I know. Please, Lord, feel free to burden me with that. I know, I know. But it really is difficult. Someone with great wealth has very serious and tough responsibilities. A member of our pulpit team knew what we were going to be learning this weekend, and he sent me this note. He said, Wayne, we've been traveling these past two Sundays, and we'll still be away on the 8th. But we had dinner at a Chinese restaurant last night, and my fortune was the two hardest things to handle in life are failure and success, close quote. That is straight from the book of Ecclesiastes. Those Chinese, they never respect intellectual property. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> Seriously, look at Solomon's financial wisdom. First thing he teaches us, two big ideas Solomon teaches. First one is wealth is painfully temporary. Painfully temporary. Now, there, there, there are four particulars to this. By the way, um, just to let you know how Solomon thinks. Boy, he, he does not get enough credit for how brilliantly he thinks. Solomon thinks in, in a binary kind of system. He was digital before digital was cool, okay? And Solomon is going to lay out two big ideas. He does this with most topics. He lays out two big ideas and then a solution. And then what he does further is with each of the big ideas, he likes quatrains. So he gives four examples of each one, and he scatters them brilliantly throughout his book. He does similar things in Proverbs and even in Song of Solomon. So this is our first big idea. It's got four parts. The first big idea is wealth is painfully tem temporary. The first pain particular is wealth can flee in a second. Uh, chapter 5, verse 13. There's a sickening tragedy I've seen under the sun. Wealth kept by its owner to his harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture, so when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. This is so true. People zealously hold their money, which feels very good, but is actually bad for us. Then suddenly it's gone, which feels very bad. 
Take, for example, the case of Kurt Schilling. Kurt Schilling is a Hall of Fame baseball pitcher who led both the Diamondbacks and the Red Sox to World Series titles, amazing athlete. When, when Kurt retired, he had $50 million in liquid assets. He had the rest of it in investments. He had $50 million in liquid assets. He invested every bit of it into a video game company, which in pretty short time burned through every penny and went bankrupt, leaving him with nothing. Soon after that, poor Mr. Schilling developed cancer. And he took all the rest of his assets and he had to liquidate all of those fighting the cancer. During that cancer battle, he became a believer in Jesus Christ. Wonderful for him, that's all that matters. Soon after beating cancer, and he did beat cancer, he got a great gig. ESPN hired him as an analyst, a baseball analyst, and he was good, very good. But his new Christianity rankled a lot of people at, uh, at ESPN, and so they fired him in a really ugly and public way. Our poor brother went from prosperity to penury over and over and over every time in the blink of an eye. And of course, we all have our own stories showing that wealth can flee in a second, right? It does. Another factor makes wealth painfully temporary is that you can't take it with you. Chapter 6, uh, verses 1 and 2. Here's a tragedy I've observed under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a man riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself, but God doesn't allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. I'm going to show you a license plate that tells a lie. It says, he who dies with the most toys wins. That is a lie. The materialist viewpoint represented by that is observably false. Solomon points out that money does not confer any kind of victory. It doesn't confer immortality, which is a truth that sickens human beings. We hate it. We consider it tragedy that every single person dies alone and penniless. You do know that, don't you? No. At the moment of death, no one else is dying for you. Every person physically on this earth dies alone, and there is no money in death. Everyone dies alone and penniless, and we just hate that. No one can materially live forever, and all wealth has to be passed on. This rankles us. So consider another Red Sox player, okay? Uh, Ted Williams, probably the greatest hitter ever to live. It's simply astronomically great hitter of a round ball with a round bat. And by the way, he was a very wise manager of his money. Back in the days when players didn't make that much, he ended up with millions. Ted Williams, late in his life, was horrified that he could not live longer to enjoy all of his stuff. So here's what he did. He had his will redrawn. And his will stated that when future technology safely awakens me from cryogenic sleep, I'm quoting here, Mr. Williams is entitled to all the stuff that he had left behind. Whoever had it, however long it had been, it all becomes his again. And then at the moment of death, he had his head cryogenically frozen. I'm sorry, Ted, you can't take it with you, not one splendid splinter. Everything we have is painfully temporary. And third point, success doesn't prevent bad turns. Past performance is no indicator of future success. All right, chapter 9, take a look at verses 11 and 12. Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, or bread to the wise, or riches to the discerning, or favor to the skillful, whether time and chance happen, all of them. For man certainly does not know his time, like a fish caught in a cruel net, or like birds caught in a trap, so people are trapped in an evil time as it suddenly falls on them. In this earthly life, that is under the sun, anytime you see an Ecclesiastes under the sun, that means during this earthly life, time and chance operate under the aegis of a sovereign God, Right? Now, we're told scripturally, and we can somewhat understand, that it is a beautiful tapestry, but the tapestry is only visible from the other side. 
From, from our side, all we can witness are these jumbled threads that are impossible to follow. Rich and poor alike die in what we call accidents. World-class athletes trip. Smart people get wounded by bad situations beyond their control. Just this week, this past week, one of the wealthiest men in Asia died in an accident. Wang Zhan uh, was the founder and the CEO of HNA Group China, one of the wealthiest com companies in the world. He was on vacation in Provence in France, and he went up to see some of the cliff churches. You ever heard of it? They're really beautiful. These, these old, old churches they built up to get away from the Vikings in Provence, and he wanted to see them, so he went up to the churches, and he slipped and fell to his death. Success doesn't prevent bad turns. In, in essence, Solomon's telling us life is a lot like a board game. Where, where you can have all the benefits and you still get cut down by a slip, you, a, a string of bad rolls of the dice. Ask anybody here who's, who's a player of uh, risk or settlers or ticket to ride, and they will tell you success does not prevent bad turns. One of the old journalism jokes, one of the oldest journalism jokes, is that when the Battle of Armageddon begins, the New York Times headline is going to say, Apocalypse, poor suffer most. Um, it, it's, it's funny, it's silly, because the apocalypse hurts everybody. Uh, tragedies do not know any boundaries. They hit all. Everyone suffers. In fact, wealth can make one a target. Solomon's fourth point. Uh, chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. There's an evil I've seen under the sun, an error proceeding from the presence of the ruler. The fool is appointed to great heights, but the rich remain in lowly positions. Long before our modern manifestation, Solomon here is describing an equality movement that is just as evil as, as the oppression of the impoverished that preceded it. Uh, what he's detailing here is not a meritocracy. This is what we would call reverse discrimination. Reverse discrimination occurs all over the world. It's occurred in most eras of humanity. Wealthy people face unfair, targeted discrimination. Now, some places that, that uh, targeting is physical. You know this, right? There are parts of this world where if you have any wealth at all, you better hired armed guards because kidnapping is so prevalent. And, and by the way, the people that I know in Pakistan and other places like that who have to hire armed guards, they pray all the time that their guards don't turn on them because it's very lucrative for them to turn and make an inside job out of the kidnapping. But sometimes, some places and times, the targeting is not physical, it's financial. Now, I feared that this might be hard for us. This might be unfathomable to us to imagine that wealthy people are targeted. So I resourced a tax accountant that I enjoy, Kevin Nightingale. He's a Canadian. And, uh, and he explains for us targeting the wealthy. Here's what he said. He said, you asked, how are the rich discriminated against? This question sounds facetious, but I think it's deserving of a serious answer. To start, every government needs money, and relatively little is available from sources it could obtain without coercion. So tax is necessary. Tax, by definition, is legalized extortion or theft. This is not a condemnation of taxation, but it is necessary to understand that concept before answering the question. First answer, to quote Slick Willie Sutton, is I rob banks because that's where the money is. Again, it sounds facetious, but it's actually an important fact. There's a limit to what the government is willing to spend to obtain funds. In economic terms, the marginal cost of collection must be less than the marginal revenue or else the, the tax makes no sense. It's cheaper to tax rich people. One tax collector, auditor, enforcement officer visit will yield more money. Rich people have more to protect, and thus they are more likely, this may surprise you, but they are more likely to comply with the law. Yes, they'll employ lawyers and accountants to minimize their tax, but once you make a lot of money, outright evasion is hard, and it is, frankly, dangerous. Poor people deal with smaller amounts that can more easily be transacted in cash, which is much harder for the government to trace. 
It's also popular to tax rich people, he wrote. There's an old saying in tax, don't tax you, don't tax me, tax that fellow behind the tree. Um, even if you consider high levels of taxation economically ineffective, which they often are, or morally unjustifiable, it's hard to feel sympathy for the wealthy. In a democracy, this taxation is a recipe for political success. H.L. Mencken pointed out, every election is a sort of advanced auction on stolen goods. He wrapped up with this. Bottom line, taxation is necessary. From a practical perspective, it makes sense to tax the rich more. Emotionally, it feels better, or at least less bad. Politically, it's a winning tactic. Enough said, and I wrote back, enough said, I think you covered it. That's a great description of targeting, which is reason number four why wealth is painfully temporary. Uh, atop the right side of our notes, we'll find the second big problem. Solomon has two big ideas, like usual. His biggest, second big problem with money is it's a minefield. Money is a moral minefield. Again, Solomon, the financial advisor, describes four aspects of this. Another quatrain. Number one, loving money is an unsatisfactory trap. Go back to chapter 5, verse 10. The one who loves money is never satisfied with money, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This, too, is futile. You ever hear of the famous John D. Rockefeller quote from the 19th century? In case you don't know him, John D. Rockefeller was, according to purchasing power, he was the wealthiest man in modern history. Uh, in era-adjusted dollars, John Rockefeller was wealthier than any of the billionaires of the era in which you and I live, and by a fairly large margin. Supposedly, a reporter asked John Rockefeller, how much is enough? And Rockefeller said, just a little bit more. Just a little more. That certainly fits what Solomon observes here in Ecclesiastes, right? Here's the richest modern person showing the dissatisfaction predicted by the wealthiest man in the ancient world. By the way, by the way, there is no confirmation for that story. And Rockefeller may never have said that at all. But we do know what he did say later in his life. Later in his life, in the 20th century, Rockefeller said this, interview with the Saturday Evening Post, and he said, I believe the power to make money is a gift from God to be developed and used to the best of our ability for the good of mankind. I know of nothing more despicable and pathetic than a man who devotes all the hours of the waking day to the making of money for money's sake, close quote. He's commenting on Ecclesiastes 5.10. Now, of course, the most famous commentary on Ecclesiastes 5.10 came from the Apostle Paul. Read with me, if you would, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul's commentary on Ecclesiastes 5.10, everyone together. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So true. So true. And reading that, we all look at it and we think one thing. Thank goodness we're not like that. Right? I mean, we don't love money. Are we sure? I want you to take a moment and look at this series of questions here. These are tough questions. Ask yourself these. Please ask yourself this. Have I ever taken a job primarily because of the salary? That was the main driving issue was the money. Have I ever entered a lottery? And, okay, for more than just entertainment purposes to throw away money. Um, have I ever worked harder to increase my personal income? Worked harder to do that more than I have to limit my expenses. Have I ever been grumpy that someone else had more? I love this picture. Have I ever been grumpy that someone else had more? Have I ever fought or, or at least fumed over an unfair inheritance that I received? By the way, that's an oxymoron. Unfair inheritance. Have I ever, and I have done this, it's horrible. Have I ever used wealth as a measure of worth? 
Have I ever considered how nice it would be to have more? Have you ever stolen anything? Anything at all? I would be astonished if every one of us is not guilty of at least one of those questions. And while I think the world of you, my dear brethren, our yes answers prove that you and I are not immune to the love of money. Please beware, it's a trap, it's a trap. Jesus pointed out that we can only serve one master, right? You love God, it leads to life. You love money, it leads to futility. Handling money is not for the weak or reckless, it is a minefield. Example number two is in Ecclesiastes 7.7. Surely the practice of extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe destroys the mind. Unethical or unearned gain destroys. The strongest statements against extortion and bribery in all of the ancient world are found in Moses' law. For a society to function well, for souls to be healthy, God's word recognized that ethics of money are critical. Let me show you something. I have missionaries uh, who are friends of mine in many countries. What a blessing. And recently I was talking about this idea with two of them. Um, now each of these guys serves in a nation that uh, 20 years ago was seriously impoverished. By the way, the two nations are very similar in terms of resources and size and population. But unnamed country number one, I don't want to say what countries they are, unnamed country number one in the last 20 years has shot up into barely reaching the middle third of the, of the wealth rankings by Credit Suisse. Uh, if you want to look this up, it's a lot of fun. Credit Suisse rank, ranks every country in the world in a bottom third, middle third, or top third in terms of median wealth per adult. Both countries were down way in the lower third, and then this one country jumped up. By the way, median wealth is based on income, property, possessions, and government benefits. But country number two, get this, in 20 years, country number two has dropped to $894 median wealth uh, for each person per year. That, that's almost $100 below what they were 20 years before. And so we're talking about the differences. Why? What's happened? My very wise friend, one of the pastors wrote this, one of the missionaries, and he said, I think this seems very reasonable. He wrote this. He said, country number one has seen corruption decline dramatically. Bribery has disappeared mainly because almost one quarter of the population is now Christian. Country number two has wallowed in corruption despite serious increase in government punishment against bribery, extortion, and insider deals. Close quote. Internal ethics change nations in ways that laws never can. When a populace accepts bribery or extortion as a way to get money, it destroys and, and it destroys more than just a nation. Solomon's saying even more here. Look, look at this. More than just countries, these issues affect individuals. What my Bible translates as the practice of extortion, that's one word in the Hebrew. There's one word, oshek. Oshek is a really ugly term. It means to oppress brutally. Extortion's a fine translation, but it's even more. Oshek is the mob demanding protection money from a business owner, okay? Oshek is corrupt officials or policemen who abuse citizens. Oshek is the store owner that kites his prices during a storm. Oshek is the bully demanding your lunch money. And when Oshek happens, it is worse for the oppressor, get this, it is worse for the oppressor than it even is for the oppressed. Seriously. Solomon says that the person who is clever enough to devise oppression actually destroys his or her own brain. The Hebrew makes it clear. The ill effects come back on the bully. Halal is what we render turns into a fool. This formerly wise or crafty bully turns himself into an object of ridicule. Unethical gain destroys the very people that it pretends to benefit. It always does. There's another corollary here that should not be missed. Poverty is never alleviated by money. 
unearned money will destroy the people that you're trying to help. It will. You want to help a poor person? Build a relationship. That's what Christopher Brooks says. Christopher Brooks is somebody I really enjoy, a pastor in inner city Detroit. I have met him once, heard him a couple of times, and this is what he says every time he speaks that I've heard him. Poverty is not escaped through money. Relationships are the thing that alleviates poverty. Relationships bring ethics. Relationships bring opportunities to ethically gain, and that changes someone's life. We have a staff member here who is especially good at this. This person is always finding impoverished people and befriending them as fellow humans, as equals made in God's image and loved by Jesus. Now, in their relationship that they build, very little, if any, money is given. But I've seen this, folks, time and time again. The person that this staffer befriends begins almost usually within six months, begins to climb their way out of poverty. What's changed? A lot of these people are people who have spent years and years on government benefits and can never seem to get out, not even get to the bottom rung of the climb out of the hole of poverty. What changed? Their mind was healed. Their life was lifted by relational support that encouraged them about ethical gain. And that's all they needed. Two more minds to expose. They're back in chapter 5. First one is we'll see how wealth attracts leeches. Chapter 5, verse 11. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? God describes here how it feels to watch all your stuff get siphoned off by greedy leeches. When, when I was a kid, uh, this song was a hit, Stuck in the Middle with You uh, by Steeler's Wheel. Um, it, it's not as good as Solomon, but it's more catchy. Uh, two Scotsmen wrote the song, Jerry Rafferty and Joe Egan. It says, uh, clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in the middle with you. Um, yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you, and I'm wondering what it is I should do. And then he describes himself. Well, you started off with nothing, and you're proud that you're a self-made man, which there is no such thing. And your friends all come crawling, slap you on the back and say, please, please, just go to the headquarters of any of the professional sports franchises in our fair city. And we got a bunch of them. And you will hear variations of that same cry, wealth attracts leeches. Final mind that blows up many. Money management is exhausting. Look at the very next verse, very next verse, verse 12. The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. If you've worked hard all day, you sleep well. But if you also have to manage the responsibility of much money, that can steal your rest. And not all are prepared for the amount of work that is involved. Look at this. This this is fascinating. According to the National Endowment for Financial Education, 70% of people who receive a large windfall end up bankrupt within five years. 70%. Isn't that amazing? Lottery winners, people who get a large inheritance, professional athletes who sign a big contract, entertainers who get a big contract, they end up bankrupt within five years. Mainly because they find out that it's exhausting to manage money. So they do it poorly. I've talked to a few, and what they do is they start thinking that they are entitled to have fun with their wealth and not have to work at it. And then it all disappears. Through Solomon, God gives us four truths about how money is a minefield for fallen humans. Here they were. Loving money is a trap. Unethical or unearned gain destroys. Wealth attracts leeches. Money management exhausting. He also gave us four reminders about the painful temporariness of wealth. It can flee in a second. You can't take it with you. Success does not prevent bad turns later, and it can make one a target. Anybody depressed yet? Don't be. 
We have the greatest financial advisor ever to guide us. All we got to do is we have to join the Queen of Sheba sitting at Solomon's feet and ask him, what do we do? And he lays out four solutions. You knew it would be a four. It's Solomon, right? He lays out four solutions in Ecclesiastes. Number one, seek wisdom. Chapter 7, uh, verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is as good as an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. Because wisdom is protection as money is protection, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. Solomon knew this better than anyone. Seek wisdom. Do you remember the choice that, that Solomon had? If you don't know the story, um, Solomon, God appears to him in a dream when his father David was still alive, and he said to him, uh, you tell me anything you want, and because you're the son of David, I will give it to you. And Solomon says, I desire wisdom. And God says, you've chosen very well. Because you didn't ask for fame or for riches, I will give you those as well. Now, this true story illustrates a universal truth. Wisdom is the first earthly thing to seek. Riches and fame are fleeting. Wisdom alone lasts. And by the way, wisdom opens the doors to everything else. Seek wisdom. One of our church college students recently quoted this passage, Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a remarkably funny book. And Adams says this. He's talking about the earth, and he says, this planet has a problem, which was this. Most of the people living on it were unhappy for pretty much of the time. Many solutions were suggested for this problem, most of which concerned with the movements. Most of these were largely concerned with the movements of small green pieces of paper, which is odd because on the whole, it wasn't the small green pieces of paper that were unhappy. That's brilliant. He's getting to a little bit of what Solomon's saying. How can we handle the hardships of money? Don't seek more money. Seek to be a wise handler of what you have. Wisdom makes the difference, not small green pieces of paper. This is why it is so important to master the art of living according to a wise budget, which is another reason that we seriously should thank God for our financial advisors. Now, read the next two verses, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. For who can straighten out what he's made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, God's made the one as well as the other, so man cannot discover anything that will come after him. Remember God. It can be hard to engage with God when we're very rich or poor. Engaging with God in prosperity and poverty can be really difficult. When we're rich, we tend to forget the Lord, and we think that we are owners instead of stewards, right? We think that we've made all that money, and we are proud of it and deserve it. Not that God has blessed us with it. And when we're poor, we likewise can become entitled, even embittered. We forget that, that we need to trust God and that He provides. We need to engage with and remember Him. This week, a pastor friend reminded me of something that I had forgotten all about. This is just amazing. When Solomon built his marvelous temple, he flanked the entrance of the temple with two bronze pillars. Take a look. 1 Kings chapter 7. He set up the pillars at the portico of the sanctuary. He set up the right pillar and named it Yachin. He set up the left pillar and named it Boaz. Who names pillars? Solomon does, and he does it for very good reason. Yachin means establishes. Boaz means strengthens. So when anybody approached the temple, and everyone did, they were reminded that God is the one who establishes. God is the one who strengthens. To handle the stress of your finances, remember God. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Thirdly, as verse 14 hinted, we should enjoy God's blessings. Um, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18. Here's what I've seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him because that is his reward. 
When, when I lived in Germany, uh, one of the Bible studies we did with our staff at the camp was on Ecclesiastes. We studied Ecclesiastes. And one of the only commentaries we had was by an old German scholar named Koenig. Uh, he did an incredible job with the Hebrew, especially here. Look at how he translated. Those of you who know German, he translated, Was ich als Probat erfahren habe war, das es trefflich sei sun essen, etc., etc. Now, here's the key thing. It's this word probat. That is a brilliant insight. You see, he was looking deeply into the Hebrew and he realized that everything in Ecclesiastes and everything in this passage is talking about this life under the sun as a probationary period. So he used the word proba, that's German for probationary. So if I were to translate it with my very limited Hebrew understanding and building on Koenig, I would translate 518 this way. What I experienced through this probationary period was that it is excellent to eat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Under the sun means this short life. The Hebrew nouns indicate this is a probationary period. The, the days we're granted here are our portion under the sun. We're here to learn and prepare for eternity. And one of the things we need to learn how to enjoy is God's blessings. After all, that's what we're gonna be doing forever, right? So have fun. Delight in what God bestows. Oh, don't waste. Don't misuse or worship things. That's foolishness. But do appreciate them. Enjoy them. You want to get over your financial woes, seek wisdom, remember God, and enjoy His blessings, whatever they are, during this probationary period that we call life. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, it really combines those first three ideas, those first three solutions, combines them really well. Look at this, read it with me. You take the underlying text. Instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant. I know, you're thinking, wow, boy, I hope rich people listen to that. Let me, let me tell you something. Just by virtue of you sitting here today, where you live, where you are in this part of the world, however poor and wealthy you are, you are among the top 5% of wealthiest people to ever walk this planet. Do you understand that? Top 5% in terms of buying power, longevity, provision. So let's read it again and make sure we're not thinking about anybody else, all right? Instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. You see, there's all three of our points. There's all three of the things Solomon's told us. Enjoy God's blessings. What do we do when life is hard because of money? Fourth step is the very conclusion of the book. Last part of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 12, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is fear God and keep His commands because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Our stewardship will be judged. The things of this earth are merely a foreshadowing of the perfect things that are to come. And our things to come are predicated on how we handled things here on earth during our probationary period. Here's how the New Testament expands on Solomon's conclusion. Here, the Apostle Paul picks up that idea and he expands on it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious for the day, talking about the day of the Lord, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work he has built survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost, but he will be saved. It will be like an escape through fire. We should focus on the judgment and what comes after this life. We should focus on eternity. In light of that, let's pray. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for anyone 
anyone who is studying with me that won't be saved as through fire. They won't even be at that judgment. The scripture is clear that people who do not trust Jesus will not be at that judgment. They'll be at a very different one. Lord, I beg you to open their eyes and draw them to you. I don't know, I don't know what they're trusting. It might be money. That's very, very popular. Although subtle, people don't always see it in themselves. It's kind of, Lord, it's kind of popular in this day and age to pretend to be anti-money, which is impossible, but that may be what they're trusting. Of course, they may, be, they may be like I was before I believed on Jesus. They may be trusting themselves. And if someone is trusting himself, he is in a very bad situation. Folks, listen, you are not completely trustworthy, and you know that. You're a sinner, and God's holy, and he loves you. <laughs> he loves you so much that Jesus fully human and very God died on a Roman cross for you. He, he paid the price that can never be paid, no matter how much money you have or whatever pretend morality you think you've adopted. He paid the price that you couldn't pay. He paid for, for our sins, and he rose from the dead so that if you believe in him, you can follow him in everlasting life. If you've never believed on Jesus, you... you <laughs> Do so right now. Right now. Trust Him. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand. I want to rejoice with you. If you're a believer on Jesus this morning, good for you. Father, I pray for all of those who are Christians. Let us handle money well so that we can enjoy your rewards. Lord, I ask this, will you prod us, please, every day in such a way that we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. May we build up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. And Father, thank you for the offering we're about to take. It's a perfect picture of everything we're talking about. We are grateful for it. In Jesus' name, amen.